0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're, this week, we're going to finish going through 1 Peter. Uh, it's been a little bit, been a long trek, but I hope that it's been as uh, convicting and encouraging to you as it has been to me to read through what Peter wanted to write to these people then and what God wanted him to write to those people then and us and the Christians throughout the ages. So let's uh, let's take a look at this. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 14. I know it sounds like a long passage, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on the last few verses of this passage, which is just Peter's uh, benediction saying goodbye. Uh, We're going to look more at the meat of it. But here it is, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14. It reads, Therefore. I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. All right, let's unpack this a little bit. Number one, shepherd the flock shepherd the flock. He says, therefore exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Let's take a second and talk about that. Because it doesn't just mean those who are older. It does not mean necessarily those who are older in age. What it means is those who are the spiritually mature among you. He says, I'm talking to those that are the spiritually mature among you. Now sometimes, right, that does mean that the person is older in age, but sometimes it doesn't. We just had an example right here of one of our young people who was sitting and said, you know what, hey, he he raised his hand up and he goes, hey, when I had a friend who didn't have anything, I gave him half of my stuff. You know what, that's a kid that understands what, what, what Peter's talking about here with this being The example, he's eight or nine years old, and yet some of us that are 24, 25, some of us that are 60, 70, 80, whatever it be, we can't grasp that concept sometimes. So this doesn't mean somebody that's necessarily older than you, but what it says is those that are the spiritually mature shepherd the flock of God among you exercising this oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. You're not supposed to do this because you have to. You, if you're spiritually mature, it, when, you're, when you're shepherding the flock, it will not be like, Ugh. I can't believe I've got to go do this again. I can't believe that I've got to do this and this. No, no, no. I can't wait to go to McDonald's and meet with this guy who needs to talk to somebody. I can't wait for Sunday morning when I get to smile and be joy to somebody else's life. It's not compulsion. It's voluntarily. You're supposed to do it eagerly, but with eagerness. And here's the thing, but not lording it over somebody. We are not supposed to be like, well, I'm the one in charge. Isn't that great? I've said this before, I'll say it again, that leadership is not fun. Leadership is hard work. Leadership is a duty and a responsibility. And when you are one of the ones who is spiritually mature, that's what you are. You're a leader. You may not be up here on Sunday morning singing, playing guitar, playing piano, or drums, or or organ, or piano, like I said, or you're not the one up here speaking, or maybe you're not the one passing out communion. But if you are spiritually mature, you are still a leader. And you should not lord it over those people that need you, that need you to be the example. Just as it says there in verse 3. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is an end to this. There is an end to this. We get a reward. Now, we're going to cast that reward back at the feet of Christ, which is a great thing. But we get a reward at the end of this. It's not like you're just going to labor for 80 years here on earth and then it's done. Then verse 5, it continues on. And he says, you younger men. And again, not necessarily younger in age. We're talking about the spiritual maturity here. Be subject to your elders and all of you, all of you, not just the younger. But the older as well. So elders and young, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's about to go. Peter's about to go and talk about humbleness here in a minute. And he starts it off here by saying, listen, clothe yourselves in it. What's the thing about clothes? Not only do they cover us, but they're the first thing you see about somebody. If somebody, I'm a big Phillies fan, Eagles fan, Flyers fan, Sixers fan. I have a ton of clothing that has their logos on it and the first thing somebody knows about me when they see me wearing that shirt or that hat is okay, that person, he is a fan of that team. It's the same thing if you have a Nike swoosh on your shirt or on something like that. Okay, that person supports Nike. If you have a Bible scripture on your shirt or something like that, the first thing someone's going to assume is, okay, that person's a Christian. Your clothes show something about you. Clothe yourselves in humility so that when somebody sees you, the first thing they see is, that's a humble person. Now, humility does not mean that you don't admit you have skills and talents and abilities. Humility would not be Miss Button going, well, I can't sing and play piano. I'm not very good at it. No, that's not humility. That's called false humility, and it's pride. Humility is if she goes, well, you know what? God gave me talent to sing and to play piano, so I better use it to further his glory. I better use it to point people to him, not to me, but upwards to him. And I better do everything in my power to improve upon my skills so that more people can be pointed to him. If I got up here, because I I have a talent for speaking, if I got up here and I spoke and everybody left here on Sunday and they went, man, that Sam, he is such a good speaker. That wouldn't be humbleness from me if I gave that out. What I want is for when people leave here on a Sunday morning to go, wow, that pastor is in tune with God and he, God is speaking through him. And I got, a, I got an answer from God. I got a message from God today. So humbleness is not saying, well, I don't have any gifts or talents or abilities. No, no, no. Humbleness is recognizing what God is giving you and then using it to point people upward to him. It's also this uh, old adage, right? Why not wives' tale, saying, though, idiom, I think is the word I'm looking for. Humbleness or humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, if that puts it into a better perspective of, for you. It doesn't mean I think that I'm lower. It means that I don't even think about myself because I'm busy thinking about somebody else. So he continues on on that. And number two here is therefore. So number one was shepherd the flock. Number two here is therefore. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Something that my dad has told me for years, my, most of my life really, is this. You will either fall on the rock and be broken into pieces, or the rock will fall on you when you will be pulverized to dust. Either way, you're going to end up broken. There's no way around that. There is no circumstance where you don't end up broken. But one is a lot less painful, and it means God's got to do way less to put the pieces back together. God, has said it right there in verse, uh, in verse 5, is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So therefore, you want that grace from God? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. God is not in the business of squashing you into the dirt and just leaving you there. Now sometimes, and admittedly for me, this happens, we need to be squashed down. We need to be knocked off the pedestal. But he's not in the business of just leaving us there. He exalts at the proper time, not above himself, but he uses and exalts at the proper time. I want to talk a little bit more about pride, of course, which is the opposite of humbleness here. Because a lot of times when we think of pride, we think of the person that goes, well, look at me, I'm so great, I can do this, I can do that, yada, 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 yada. And really, yeah, that's that's pride. And and to be honest, I'm going to use my life as an example. When I was younger, that was what I dealt with in pride. I wanted people to look at me. I wanted people to be like, wow, that Sam is a good speaker. He's a good singer. He's a good actor. He's good at this. He's good at that. Look at Sam. But nowadays, that's not that's not how I deal with pride nearly as much. I'm not saying it doesn't rear its ugly head like that sometimes. But that's not how I deal with pride. The pride in my life comes because I am a controlling I like to be the one in control of things. And so I struggle to let somebody else do something. And And I rationalize it in my head by saying, hey, you know, if it fails, I want people to look at me and be like, okay, it failed because of Sam. Not because of somebody else. It failed because of Sam. I have always said, you know what, I've got broad shoulders. I can take it. But here's the thing. While that sounds great on the surface, oh, look at our pastor. He, wants the, he takes the weight on his shoulders, and he's willing to go and do this for people. Uh, it means that I'm not allowing anybody else to do anything. It means that I'm the one that's in control of every situation, and that's pride. It sounds good on its surface, but when you dig down underneath, it's just pride. And maybe that's how you deal with it. Maybe this pride presents itself. You need to have your eyes open because pride can show itself in different ways. I'll say this I am of the personal belief that just about every sin, if you boil it down, it will boil down to pride. What was the first sin? It wasn't Adam and Eve, it was Lucifer who wanted to be God. He was prideful. The very first sin went back to pride. And then you can look at Adam and Eve. You'll have this knowledge. Well, you know what? I want to be like God too. I want to know good and evil. I want pride. This is why the Bible talks so much about humbleness. It's why Peter talks about it here. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here's the thing. You cannot give up your anxieties if you're being prideful. You cannot give them up. Because you will say, and I've said this, I say it, I want it, I can handle it, I can do it, but that's pride. Instead of going, God, here you go, I can't do it. Casting all your anxiety on him. And then verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I've said it so many times since I've been here, and I'm going to keep saying it for as long as I'm here. Satan is real, and he's on the move. Because there's nothing Satan hates more than seeing people come to Christ. And so he's moving, and he's moving hard and fast. And there's really two ways that Satan works. They kind of boil down to these two ways. The first way is he tries to lull Christians to sleep and keep them asleep. Because if a Christian is asleep... They're not going to be doing anything for the cause of Christ. So here's the thing. If your life doesn't have a lot of turmoil in it at times, not at times, if you look back at your life and you're going, man, I've never really experienced any sort of spiritual attack really, you should ask yourself, why doesn't Satan care about me? I talked to one of my friends when I was in college because he gave me his testimony. He went, yeah, and God has been so good. I'm 20-some years old now, and I've just never had to really deal with anything. And I looked at him, and I said, where do you find that in Scripture? Where do you find where people don't deal with stuff? And he goes, no, it's just because God has blessed me so much that I haven't had to deal with anything. And I'm like, no, it's because you've never stepped out for him. And so Satan's never tried to do anything. Because why? Why? Would Satan send an earthquake your way to wake you up if you're asleep? Because you're not doing anything. The second way is for those of us that are awake. And here's the thing. I will say this. I don't think that anybody is ever 100% awake. We all have blind spots. That's why we need each other. One of the reasons we need each other in the body of Christ is to help each other. But for those of us that are awake... He doesn't try to lull you to sleep or keep you asleep. Instead, he tries to throw everything your way to discourage you from continuing to move forward. He tries to throw everything your way, such as there's no water for two days of VBS or a Sunday morning where we have kids here. He throws that your way. He tries to throw these things to try to stop you and discourage you. He's a, we, and so we need to be on alert. Because he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to destroy. Don't be the one that he can easily destroy. Now, it's not you. Again, this goes back to casting all your cares, your anxieties upon God. If you say, I can take Satan, you're going to lose 100% of the time. Maybe not. 98, because Satan might let you win a few battles so that you get a little more overconfident before he really hits you. But if you say, I'm going to cast everything on Christ, and I'm just going to walk in him, Satan doesn't stand a chance. So that's number two. Number one was shepherd the flock. Number two was therefore. Now number three, resist and suffer. Resist and suffer. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Here's the thing I'm going to tell you. If you are a Christian, if you are willing to walk the walk, if you are willing to not be asleep, you will suffer. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no way around it. You're going to suffer. Not going to sugarcoat it here. But here's the thing. The Bible says here, God says here, resist him. Resist, that's an action word. Do it. Be on constant alert, be a sober spirit, and resist him standing firm, where? In your faith. Not in yourself, not in your talents, not in your knowledge. In your faith, stand firm. Your faith in God. That faith which is the size of a mustard seed which can move a mountain, stand in that faith. Because if you try to stand anywhere else, you'll never make it. But stand firm in that faith. And here's the thing I'm also going to tell you. You're not alone. There is nothing that you have suffered or our suffering that somebody else hasn't and isn't in the world today. You're not alone. You might try to convince yourself, oh, you know what? Nobody's suffering like Lee. Poppycock. They all are. Now, here's the thing. Somebody does have to have it the worst. It's the nature of it. But I, I doubt it's you. You live in this country. It's not the worst. But you don't suffer alone. You suffer with your fellow believers in Christ. And that should be encouraging to you to know, you know what? I'm not alone in this fight. I get to fight this fight with thousands upon thousands of millions of other Christians around this world. And then here's the thing, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you've suffered on this earth, guess what? There's an end. You get to go home to the God of all grace, who called you to himself, and there he's going to perfect you. He's going to confirm you, he's going to strengthen you, and he's going to establish you. We get there one day. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and we're just going to look at these last few verses here. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. What does that mean? It could mean one of two things. It could mean that just like Paul, Paul didn't write, physically write most of his letters. He spoke them, and somebody else wrote them. That's one of the, uh, one of the ways this, that, that this could mean, things that this could mean. It could also mean that the letter was sent through Sylvanus, That it was him who carried the letter to these people. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's now the second time in a few verses he said stand firm. So keep doing it. She who was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does my son, Mark. Mark, of course, is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark, who wrote it based on what Peter said. And then here in verse 14, we see the pickup line that failed me so many times as a teenager. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Never worked. You'd walk up and say, hey, baby. The Bible says we should kiss. They don't buy it. You try to show it to them. They're like, well, that's not a context. And then Peter ends with this. That's what I'm going to end you with. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Peter said it 2,000 years ago. I'm going to say it today. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you inspired Peter to write these things down for the people then, but also for us today. God, I thank you that we learned weeks, months ago that we are firm in our salvation, that you're the one that's holding on to us. You called us to us, and I thank you that we can look at how we're supposed to live and walk. I'm asking that you help us to stand firm, to resist Satan. I'm asking that you help us to humble ourselves. Send people into our lives to tell us when we're not being humble. And God, I'm asking that you would help us to decide to fall on the rock instead of having the rock fall on us. God, I'm asking that you would grant us all peace, in since you are the Prince of Peace. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.